Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpha for the Union Pilots of JetBlue. Now from New York, Ride Report. Well, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Ride Report. I'm uh, your host, J.R. Hall, JetBlue Alpha Centralair Safety and Foqua Gatekeeper. And as we talked about in our episode just a couple of weeks ago, a lot of good topics that are coming up. A lot of it's driven with uh, JetBlue Alpha Pilot feedback. We're always available for your show suggestions, any topics that we might need to cover, any topics that we need to expand on. We're just a PDR way, and we cannot thank you enough for taking the time not only to listen to our podcast here, but... Uh, drive us in the direction that you want to hear, whether it's a subject matter expert or anything else that happens to be important to you. Somewhat of a different medium here today as I look around the room, which is more important than not in the last year and a half since we, well, virtually since we've started the podcast, it's all been on a virtual medium. Not only are we all able to gather today in a room to record the podcast, but it's also an extra special event, not only for Central Air Safety, but for other committees as well that offer pilot assistance. We're able to gather down here in Washington, D.C. Uh, with our JetBlue Alpha Safety Symposium. And I've got a wonderful group of people joining me, friend of the podcast. He's been on several times. Blake Kelly, once again, Central Air Safety Chair. Welcome back. Hey, JR. Always good to be here. We're going to introduce uh, Vaughn Ritter, Vice Chair. He'll be in here in, uh, in just a few moments. And then from our Environmental Standards Committee, we have Chair uh, Nick Hoffman and Anna Maria Scorsone. Good morning. How are you guys? Hey, good morning, Chair. Thanks Hi. for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. First things first, before we uh, jump into uh, specifically ESCs here, which means we're most likely going to talk about fumes and the topic of it, what needs to be highlighted is the vast majority of work that you guys have done since the committee has stood up. But more importantly, the data that you've collected here within the last generally a a year, um, I want to jump into that. It's very relevant. It's very topical, but it's also very important that we're getting the feedback from our pilots. But before we talk to uh, Nick and Anne Maria, Blake, Central Air Safety as as a whole, winding down from summer, give us an update, initiatives, and and what's hot right now with Central Air Safety. Well, we knew summer was going to be difficult. If you remember our podcast, I, th- I think I was on last. Uh, we went in the summer with, you know, knowing that we're going to have a lot of challenges, and it was exactly what we expected. And, and where we weren't alone as an airline, uh, the entire industry is obviously was strained with not just lack of pilots and being short there, but also in other work groups. Even though the the flight counts have come down and, and summer's supposedly winding down, still a question mark because still there's a, a lot of flying and we're still short pilots. The company is hiring a lot of pilots and, and we're having to get ready for this, you know, all the training coming from the last system bid. Fatigue is still something that's still hot on our radar. We had record-breaking fatigue reporting numbers through the summer and uh, it's still it's still an issue to watch for us. There was some communications out the last couple of weeks we've highlighted, specifically the safety LOA, right? We've been now doing the safety LOA discussions for for close to 18 months. Again, we started those in, in January of 2020. We reached an agreement in principle in, in September of that year. And so we've been in final LOA language negotiations for over a year now. Yes, COVID has been a, uh, a factor in delaying us having regular meetings with the company and sure. so forth. But we, we were moving pretty good and we got some in-person meetings that certainly helped Again, this is this is from the agreement in principle. It should be achievable. There's no surprises for the company, and we're not pulling any last-minute curveballs. This is should be easily completed. Let's move over to the most recently the ASAP program company memo that went out on comply about the inclusion of the NASA ASRS form. P 
people might not be familiar with NASA forms that have transitioned into professional aviation recently, but those that have been here 10, 15, even longer, 20 plus years are very familiar with the NASA form. Why? What was the importance yeah. behind that? What are the benefits when we look at comparison? They're kind of the same programs that are working in parallel, but now we're marrying the two together. So I'll kind of start with its impetus. Where why did it get why did the company uh, release that? And it, it actually came from the safety LOA discussions. Okay. As we looked at what other airlines had, one we we knew that airlines uh, married up their ASAP program with the NASA ASRS system, and we saw that many of them had that contractually obligation on the company to do that. Looking at it, saw it was a benefit and brought it into safety LOA discussions with the company. Hey, could we do this? That section of the the LOA has been TA'd, and so the company was already working on the IT infrastructure to implement it. So that that's where it kind of came from. Let's get into that program, and what's the benefit? Like, why even ask for it? Uh, hopefully, our pilots at some time flew before being at an airline, and, and the only reporting program available to you as a, just a general pilot out there is that NASA ASRS program. And so that's a way for any pilot to report anything into that into that system and in exchange for making those reports there were some certificate protections right so um that benefits there now when you work at an airline that has an asap program the question is well why do you need that anymore you have asap and those protections are better than the nasa srs program and how they how they apply and that that's true there there's a lot of nuance between the differences of the program so the question is if you could have both of those protections why not uh, even though the ASAP protections are more comprehensive uh, and and are higher than what the NASA ASRS program provides, why not have the backstop of also those NASA ASRS uh, protections as well? The most common uh, scenario I could come up with of why you might want that report out there is ASAP is still predicated on the acceptance of that report by the ERC. And the ERC is still three parties, again, ALPA, the company, and the FAA. And there is situations where they might, for whatever, for any of the reasons outlined in the in the program, could exclude the report. If the report is excluded, then the ASAP protections go away. Now, if you had an ASRS report filed, you get those protections still. They have similar criteria, like uh, you know, again, it doesn't protect you from criminal activity, for example. But it's not a committee making that decision. Okay, that's a policy uh, decision of the FAA. But now that you have that. A report in as well, that's another protection, a layer of protection you have. There's also a benefit just beyond the individual airmen. It's it's the data. It's well protected under the NASA ASRS program, just like it is. It's equivalent to ASAP. So by sharing that data in that system as well, it helps improve safety, which is what we're about. To talk about that real quick, the, the strip that you used to get in the mail if you filed an ASRS NASA form, is that still something that that takes place or is there no electronic means to receive that communication or is that just something that we're not even maybe necessarily looking for when we filed both yeah. of these reports no no the, the strip is a part of that program and so what you're it's kind of your receipt that you did fill out a nasa srs report because it's so protected the faa does not have any ability uh to see any identifying information to check if if they think that there is a possible pilot deviation on you okay they can't go verify, did you submit a NASA SRS report? Where under ASAP, they can. They, they will ask the company and say, hey, on this flight, we have a pilot deviation, and that's all handled with the ERC, and they'll verify, yes, you have an ASAP in, so you're good. Well, the, the way the NASA program works is 
if the FAA ever approached you about a possible violation, you'd say, well, I did fill out a NASA SRS report and you have to prove it. And that's your receipt. So part of the way that's was implemented with the company is when you submit that report in our internal JetBlue system, it will grab your personal identifying information in order to submit that to NASA for that receipt so that you would receive it. Okay. And um, I believe that actually you can get it electronically, but you might get something in the mail as well where it's that's your receipt that you submit that report. And you'd hold on to that in case you actually need it, uh, of course, yeah, if something right? comes up. Yeah. yeah. When it comes to ASAP reporting, you know, we've long promoted that uh, an ASAP report is great for any general safety concern you know, a reduction in the safety margin, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the importance of that with Nick and Anna Maria from Environmental Standards here in a second. But when when you take that that idea of submitting an ASAP report for a general safety concern, is it something that you would want to have included with an ASRS form? Or is there a method to separate the two? Or should a pilot always go into thinking, if I submit an ASAP report, whether it's for certificate protection, pilot deviation, or a general safety concern, that that the two of those together should always be linked up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the NASA SRS program is more designed for operational events, so a safety concern may may not be relevant to that program. However, what when we looked at discussing this with the company and how to implement it, we never saw a reason that you shouldn't file a NASA SRS report, even if it's a general safety concern. Like, could be an airspace, a concern about airspace rules or about airport environment. Uh, that could still be used, right? So... What we did, what we encouraged the company to do, and they did, is it will default. So in the GEMS report, when you go to submit your ASAP, that checkbox, uh, you have to opt out. It will automatically always send a NASA ASRS report for you, unless you've made it a conscious decision that I don't want a NASA report for whatever reason it may be. You'd have to you'd have to opt out by clicking that box. So basic takeaway is for those that look at the ASRS form, the NASA form, and go, "Oh man, no, this is this is okay." This is something that's going to reinstill protections for the individual reporting pilot. Yeah, a pilot should understand that the safety committee has looked at it and not see that there was any opportunity for additional risk by submitting your NASA report. So uh, that's why we asked for the default of go ahead and submit it, because we'd rather have that than have you have to actively suggest to, su to submit that NASA report on your behalf and leading to a situation where now you don't have one when you want one. So there's, there's no risk in letting it default to that if you want to. Use your own judgment to remove that. You can, but you should go ahead and let it submit for you. Very good. Blake Kelly, Central Air Safety Chair. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Ride Report. Thank you. We're going to talk about um, aircraft data. We talked about the safety LOA ongoing discussions with the company um, and how that you know translates into FOCWA. But before we jump onto that, I want to welcome uh, Nick Hoffman and Anna Maria Scorsone from the Environmental Standards Committee. Thanks again for joining us, guys. Hey, thanks for having us, Jerry. You. Before we jump into these questions, and and more specifically into the work that you guys have both accomplished with Fumes, not just on ESC, but personally as well, right? Um, give us a quick history of uh, not only time with Alpa, but where, where you guys based fleet and seat. So uh, my name is Nick Hoffman. I'm a Airbus captain in uh, Boston, and I uh, started by volunteering with uh, Alpa in the Pilot Assistance Network. And then when the Environmental Standards Committee was formed, it was something that interested me, and I threw my name in a hat and got called and said, you want to be chair? Some fellows in Boston uh, kind of helped that along. But uh, yeah, here I am. Uh, I have a vast maintenance back aircraft maintenance background. So that's kind of helped me in this situation. And uh, the Environmental Standards Committee has been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. A lot of work, but a lot of fun. Um, Anna Maria, I'm a uh, Airbus A320 FO in Fort Lauderdale. 
this is my first, you know, union committee volunteer position. Uh, I was happy to answer the call when it came because there is, uh, was a huge need for it. Inadvertently, been kind of doing a lot of this work just on the line, you know, supporting pilots, uh, crew members that have been affected, you know, physically, you know, what to do. Sure. Um, so it's been incredible to be part of this program to have the access, A, to the data, um, to collect and monitor what's happening, but also to be able to talk to pilots as they're needing to be, you know, guided or need some help, you know, just being able to reach out, knowing who they are. And sometimes, you know, pilots reach back out, sometimes they don't, but for the ones that have needed, you know, to talk to somebody or get some advice, it's it's been really, really wonderful to have that connection. And to that point and making that connection, and it's a beneficial connection, you know, we as pilots, you know, not just at JetBlue, but at any other airline that's going to have a, an event. Um, it's something that we do discuss. The initiatives that you guys have moved forward on is, is what I want to jump into first. A few events do occur. Where are you guys right now as far as creating, like you said, Anne-Maria, that, that connection and, and encouraging people to reach out to you guys? Yeah, JR, that's a that's a great point you bring up. Fume events and cabin air quality events are not um, specific to just JetBlue. They affect every airplane that's a commercial airliner that uses bleed air for pressurization and cooling. So, in the beginning, when we started the uh, started the Environmental Standards Committee work, we started to collect data. The data that we've collected is kind of really grown, and has been extremely useful in helping us make our case with the company through the reports that pilots submitted, ASAPs, FCIRs, PDRs, uh, we've been able to take that data, but we collect over about 30, almost 40 data points on each event, and we track descriptions, and then we calculate how many events we've had over the last week, last month, last year, and we kind of compare, and we really use that data to help us make our case with the company that something needs to be done. It's been eye-opening to them that we that we actually have this data so it's really been useful and and we're grateful for it. carmelo marino's the guy that maintains the spreadsheet um so yeah it's been really good so we do have a lot of data we do appreciate the reports that guys are filling out and sending us but we most certainly want more reporting you know i think there's a misconception um just with the lack of awareness that from our committee standpoint and just from the fcom you know fcom uh, requires you to report that. Even what you think might be just a quick transient odor, hey, you might have gone nose blind, it might actually be going on longer. But having even that one transient report, what you perceive to be transient, it's it's incredible data for us. So we encourage that. Um, and you are following FCOM procedure by doing that. So To talk to the reporting aspect of it and how you guys get the information that you need to track trend and bring that identifying information, bring that important data point to the company. The ASAP report is something that, that within central air safety has always been a suggested method of, of reporting it because it would be a general safety concern. And some people might look at that and go, well, okay, I just did the fumes odor survey and I filled out the logbook and now I got to do an FCIR. The ASAP out of, out of all that stuff that I just mentioned, is that literally the one way that you guys get all the information you need to continue building that database? I like to think the ASAP is is the most important one. And, and the reason I say that is it helps us collect all the data. And the more information people can give us, the better. Um, especially about factors where it happened, you know, altitudes, 
weather, those kinds of things. But the ASAP report, the reason I think it's most important uh, is because it offers the protections that Blake was uh, just speaking about before. And I think it also, you know, getting the FAA eyes on the issue is very important because we're never going to get adequate re- regulation regarding, you know, filtering, you know, the sensors we may need. So we're not relying on our physical body or somebody's ability to smell without having sufficient data. So to get regulation, to get improvement, you know, to progress into maybe down the line, just not having this kind of a <laughs> bleeder system would be ideal, but there are immediate fixes that are already available. Um, and in order for the FAA to really maybe consider that down the line, uh, we need the data. We need adequate reporting to get adequate regulation. Sure. And I want to talk about that initiatives and or any other new advancements in technology. But Anna Marie, I think you said it the best in the beginning where it's it's a personal event and we all kind of harbor our own personal events and don't talk about them very, very often. Um, and the we need a way to overcome that, um, but it's beneficial to break down those barriers to that engagement point. Me personally, I know that the two of you have always taken phone calls, emails, text messages, day or night, to be able to do that. But is is that enough? And and if it is, can anybody that may even on a chance think they might have had a fumer odor event, is it okay to just casually reach out? to either one of you and, yeah, and just talk about absolutely. it. Absolutely. And there is three of us, you know, um, Carmela Marino, JFK captain. We are all ready to, you know, make those take those phone calls or call back as soon as we can because it is a lot of a lot of pilots suffer in silence, just blaming themselves, not quite recognizing that even if you weren't sure, because we do have orderless ones, that's a whole other conversation to be had. But um, even if you didn't put the logbook entry um, we've had guys reach out after the fact and was like, hey, you know, and, and we're happy, you know, to talk to them and give them some some advice. So, you know, Jr. the other thing I'd like to, to add is um, a few events, uh, just like anything, any medication you'll you'll take, like some one person like me personally, I'm allergic to penicillin. So penicillin, Likewise. right. Penicillin yeah. might save someone's life and it will kill me. Yep. So uh, so you'll be flying along, flying along with somebody and you'll all of a sudden you'll you'll be starting to smell dirty socks and you'll look to the person next to you and you go, hey, you smell that? And they go, no, I don't smell anything. So fume events uh, biologically are very individually individualistic. Yeah. So that makes the, uh, the problem even more complex. Yeah, that's subjective response. <clears throat> right. And then a mechanic walks on board and says, I don't smell anything. It signs a logbook off. But it is, it, it is a cumulative thing. And we do get exposed to kind of a chronic low-dose exposure on the regular, um, meaning, you know, Nick will talk more about it, but, you know, engine seals don't seal perfectly. Um, the APUs, you know, for us has been a significant culprit in the issue. But, you know, one out of two people really have a difficulty detoxing their body. You know, there are genetic mutations out there that if you get a toxin in, you know, your liver enzymes, you know, there's specific ones that, you know, um, handle organophosphates, you know, TCP is what we're dealing with. Um, your body may not process it. So, you know, it is more common than not. You know, I think most people are like, ah, you know, oh, you're one of the few. Um, but when, if we actually dig into what are those symptoms, what are the residuals? I mean, you can have symptoms immediately. Most of them should manifest within 48 hours. So it might be the next day that you're just, your body's not processing and you're feeling sicker than you yeah. were initially. So, um, you know, who's to say what 
the guy next to you flew three days ago. You know, they might have had two human airplanes close proximity. So they are much more sensitive to the bleed air period, let alone contaminated bleed air at the time. So that's why there is also a significant variance in who's sicker and who isn't, because it is accumulative. And if your body doesn't process it, then you are going to be more affected. Yeah. And uh, the Environmental Standards Committee has, has set up that coordination with other committees to get you the support you need. So like like Anna Maria was talking about, Nick, about when you might become symptomatic, you know, they can helpfully help address those those issues but initially, but then when you start thinking about, okay, is this a workers' comp issue or is there a concern about my medical, you know, they're working with the Air Medical Committee and Grievance to help navigate that step. So if you, and the sooner you do it, the better. That's, you know, they can help, you know, address things. It's always easier when we're included in the beginning than at the end when some decisions have already been made and it's hard to undo. So definitely, absolutely encourage that if it, it all, have a fume event and you need support, this is your first stop is call, call the Environmental Standards Committee or file PDR. What are some of the advancements? We, we talked about it just a second ago. Some of the advancements moving forward, advancements in technology or otherwise that that are maybe monitoring for cabin air quality events or or actively trying to eliminate well, the first thing I'll, I'll say is in our, in our conversation with, conversations with the company that, uh, Blake has arranged, um, they did, there is a, a filter system that's very easily, um, accessible right now. And what it does is replace the HEPA filters because HEPA filters are not meant to, uh, filter out or VOCs, volatile organic compounds. That's more of, uh, virus air cleansing stuff. Um, so there is a, an upgraded filter system that is on the market that JetBlue is considering. But in addition to that, they're also, uh, they tell us they're looking into, uh, sensor systems, which would monitor the cabin air quality and would actually alert the company if this sensor system detected, you know, toxic, toxic, threshold. right. Yeah, it exceeds sure. a toxic threshold. It'll let the company know that, Hey, this, this airplane is doing that. Um, so they're looking into that. Teldyne, I think, is the manufacturer of that system. Uh, there's a couple of others on the market. Uh, Paul Aviation is one. Uh, they have a pure cabin filter system, which is sensors, filters, basically everything you need for, for a, uh, a bleed air pressurization cooling system on an airplane. And it has the capability to even report to pilots iPads and, you know, uh, down the road, which would be ideal. But even just for, you know, straight to the company, live, live feed information on what's going on with the cabin errors would be beneficial for troubleshooting later. Because up to this point, um, you know, if tech ops can't smell, you know, the dirty sock on the ground because it's dry, um, it, it, it can be really misleading. So we need more data. Um, and, they, and the availability to get that data is there. And our, our physical being, how we feel in the airplane, our ability to determine undetermined hypoxia, which is the initial cues of contaminated uh, cabin air, uh, should not be the gauge of the airworthiness of an aircraft. And, you know, we need something much more reliable than that. Environmental Standards Committee, Nick Hoffman, Anna Maria Scorsone, and Carmelo Marino. The work that you guys have put in so far just in gathering the spreadsheet, but the work that you guys continue to do, it's important. And I, I think maybe for me, the biggest overarching uh, theme to take away is the data is incredibly beneficial. The ASAP is crucial. Absolutely, Joe. Any closing remarks from you guys before we move on to Here Comes Vaughn? Thank you for the opportunity. You know, I'm so appreciative for Blake Kelly. Um, 
letting us do our job. So, you know, it's been, it's been good. The long-term goal, you know, it's out there, but being able to chip away at it has been a blessing. So thank you. Oh, here comes Vaughn. Woo! The room is big enough for Microphone Limited, which is okay here. Right. A beautiful studio. We're, we're actually the first people to record in this studio here in Vallow Park. Everything is recently brought over. And again, Eric Davis running the board for us here. Just wrapping up with Environmental Standards Committee, we had a good update from uh, Blake Kelly, Central Air Safety Chair, now Vice Chair, Vaughn Ritter. Vaughn, how are you? I'm doing well. Good to be here. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, we'll flip the script real quick, uh, but hot topic for you, wise to update before we start talking about FOQA. Probably one of the biggest things is reporting. We've got JetBlue review my report. If you ever have a question about if you're submitting a uh, correct report or the report's too much information, not enough information, we're more than happy to, to review that and look over it to help you out before you submit anything. The narrative review. Correct. Crucial narrative review. That's right. Okay. We're going we're gonna to turn the tables, make the interviewer the interviewee. And uh, if you could tell us about, uh, give us a FOQA update. Okay, so here we go. So I, I wish that Tim Winger was here because Tim Tim Winger's uh, for a long time been the been the FOQA chair. So I will do my very best Tim Winger impression. But um, FOQA, man, uh, uh, I mean, it's the committee that you almost never hear from. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not doing work. I mean, every day there's a a full time uh, gatekeeper available to not just the pilots, but to the company as well. And that's something that started about six months ago with the ongoing safety LOA uh, discussions. A good sign of the FOCA program is that the FOCA data is tagged in other entities such as training or flight ops or ABG. That's where we know that our FOCA program is working. It's never really truly hearing directly from the gatekeepers. I mean, we kind of like to keep ourselves behind the behind the cloak <laughs> if you will in the shadows because there's there there is an awful lot of trust that goes into maintaining a healthy FOQA program and that trust comes a, a lot from the anonymity of the program between the gatekeeper and the pilot uh, is knowing that that is a 100% completely confidential and completely non-punitive conversation to look back at some of the work most recently you ask me anecdotally, I mean, crew contacts have gone up 200% <laughs> because we're, we're just, we're available now so much more often to get into our FOCO computers and, and analyze that data with our company counterparts, our company analysts as well, to have more time to go back and look at events, to create events, to go in and look for, so that we do continue to have the most up-to-date operational pulse of the airline on a on a day to day basis, and when we do discover an event, that reaching out to the pilot is definitely not you know somebody coming to shake their finger or or tell you you did something wrong or otherwise. The information at the end of the day is is the most beneficial part of that. It's not about the event; it's everything that led up to that event. There's always a why as to how that that event took place. And for a line pilot that's not familiar, what who is a gatekeeper? So, so a gatekeeper is a uh, here specifically for JetBlue is a is a full time JetBlue Alpha line pilot. We're all seniority list pilots. We're all full time pilots. We consist of Tim Winger, who is going through 190 upgrade uh, right now. He's the chair. Uh, myself, former 190 first officer, and now uh, just recently finished up and got consolidated on the 220. Uh, Brian Kaysen, who is a former uh, company analyst for the Focal program years and years ago is a 320 FO, and then Matt Pitvik is our fourth gatekeeper, who is a uh, E-190 captain in Boston. 
Matt's got experience um, from his previous airlines as a focal gatekeeper. I have experience from my previous airline as a focal gatekeeper. Uh, Tim has worked in various other safety programs uh, with several other airlines, specifically with Focal and his time at JetBlue. That's been predominantly his uh, area of expertise. He was years ago the company Focal program manager. When Alpa was on property, he transitioned over to the Alpa side to help build up that program, and it's still work that we continue to do. A gatekeeper is the only individual that has access to the truly identifying information of an event. And we tell this to everybody, if we make a focal phone call, it's the first thing that we're telling them, you know, protections are here, it's non-punitive, all this is confidential, and we're the only people that have access to this identifying information, specific date, the crew, and their names and their telephone numbers. All that stuff is, is only solely accessible by a gatekeeper. When you sit down and finally get a chance to talk to the gatekeeper, they may tell you, they may not, but for, for this venue... All that information is destroyed as soon as we're done with it so that we can't even go back and determine or try to reach out to that person again. So it's really kind of our one opportunity to take to ask as many questions as we can from our comprehensive review of a flight. Um, and that's that's our one and only time to do it. So not only do we discover an event within FOQA, having all this additional time to go do it, but then it's ratcheting up the action because we have X number of days to go in and accomplish that contact complete our uh, research into the flight, complete the conversation with the crew, and then be able to turn that around and provide the beneficial information back to the company so that it falls into other assets like the quality of a healthy focal program into the ABG or over to flight standards to have them go investigate a procedure or a, or a policy somewhere within FCOM or FOM. So should a pilot have any fear or concern about talking to a gatekeeper? Absolutely not. Although some people might have... <laughs> Some people might have some fears. Uh, some people might, you know, feel the heat coming around the corner when they see an unknown number calling. Um, but it's it's not a call to why did you do that. It is how did you get there. Focal events, right? Everybody thinks, oh man, I hit a focal trigger. Great, they're going to call me. Every flight creates a focal trigger because we're looking at everything from engine starts to shutdowns to APUs running to doors open and close, gear up, gear down. How many times did you touch the switch? Did the seatbelt sign go on? Or I mean, all this stuff is recorded and with it protections. It's the focal events that we build and contact pilots on that are usually built against a procedure in the FCOM. For example, you know, an unstabilized approach, right? Even if it was a totally gross approach and a gatekeeper is still calling you. It's okay, you know, answer the phone. Because we're not going to go recount probably the worst approach of your life that might honestly keep you up at night. It's, it's finding out everything else that went back in there. If we have a great conversation, excellent. If there's a beneficial takeaway, even better. But it's all of that information that we can only get from having that conversation to fill in, get 95% of the data from the airplane. We need 5% of the story from the crew because they're the only ones who are there real time to experience and be able to give a gatekeeper in that uh, protected space all of those factors that went into that and what is the benefit to the pilot group from the, a focal program the benefit is at the end of the day the data that comes out being able to have a confidential conversation pilot to pilot identify what the root cause is and quickly turn that information back around to a, a, a distribution medium be it the take example the abg if I had a gross, unstable approach into some new runway, because that's the way it's going down now, 
you would want to have every pilot be ready to combat that same scenario that you went through to bring everybody back into a predictable operating environment. JR, if you do get a gatekeeper call, I mean, yeah, pilots can get nervous and they feel like they have to do something else. Like, oh, I guess I have to file an ASAP now. Or, oh, they called me on something that requires an FCIR, so I guess I got to put that in. Or maybe I need to talk to my rep. Or maybe there was a, a crew issue, so he feels like I need to call pro stands. Give us, you know, put pilots at ease. Of what, if they get a gatekeeper call, who knows about it and what do they have to do about it? So that call should resonate with two different things. It's confidential and it's non-punitive. The inference, the takeaway from that is that anything, anything else that comes out after that conversation is de-identified because all the identifying information is, is gone. Overall, you're playing in a space that is dealing voluntarily with a de-identified program. When you compare that to identified programs, it is, it's going to be to the determination of, of the pilot on whether or not they want to participate in a fully identified voluntary safety program as well. You know, they should consider that uh, if they get called by a gatekeeper and understand that no one else knows. No one else knows about Nobody this event else and knows. no one else will. will. Um, and if they choose to go file an ASAP or an FCR, they're, they're identifying themselves at that point. So that, that needs to go into some consideration of the exposure that that will bring. Exactly. So, yeah, so they, they don't have to worry if they call a gatekeeper. No one else knows it except the two of you. They'll be on that phone call and talk, right? Exactly right. Okay. Exactly. Um, as far as the last little update, I guess I'll throw in uh, the the catalyst of Crosstalk, and it's a relatively new uh, safety program. It, it's essentially a, a, a connection, a cable to tie uh, FOQA in a absolutely, you know, unmistakable, comprehensive pilot protection foundation to other entities, other voluntary safety programs to take uh, data from one focal program and put that into other programs such as fatigue or ASAP, not as a way to uh, identify, you know, who the pilot is and what the pilot did wrong. It's again, another way to take that information that we get from a, from a crucial crew contact and turn it around so that we can better build the system. And when it comes to a good example of fatigue is being able to utilize FOCA data in, in crew aircraft handling techniques when we know they're operating at a, within their walkout, within their circadian low. And we can see, we all know that, you know, there's, there's different percentages of threats occurred in flight. And it's more specifically some of the higher threats, some of the more sustained long lasting threats are in that approach to landing phase. And, we can see how pilots are flying the airplane from either monitoring the automation or actually putting their hand on the stick or the yoke and, and, and moving the airplane around. What can we take from that and how can we better build or identify a fatiguing pairing, a fatiguing flight, a fatiguing timetable by being able to marry those two bits of information up? It is, like I said, relatively new. It's not something that is... Uh, 100% in effect here at JetBlue, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot more conversation, a lot more construct that's got to come in to do it. But at the end of the day, what it's really going to be able to do is safely, securely, and with comprehensive protections, take very important data from FOQA and be able to use that to affect change within other safety programs. So it allows for a deeper understanding of events. A vastly deeper understanding. Absolutely right. 
Yeah, because there's always this one question that would resonate from one report to another is what are we missing? What can't we see? And a lot of that is the human interacting with the machine. And that's where we are in FOQA. And our program is so protected, you know, and we're often maintaining that for the program integrity and the trust. Uh, but that data that we also have is incredibly beneficial to filling in those gaps that other safety programs uh, frequently come to question themselves. Well, thanks for explaining that. And that's FOQA. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, JR. Well, moving right out of focal before we wrap up here, ride report again. If there's something we've talked about here today uh, that that you need more information on, make sure you reach out to the individual committee. The PDR is best. If there's a topic idea or some subject matter expert that you'd like to hear on ride report, we're just a PDR away. Blake, any last minute mentions? Yeah, I'd just like to leave the pilot group with an important safety message. Um, it, it's been a crazy couple years here, and it, I feel like I have to keep bringing this up because we've never been such in a prolonged and protracted time frame of so much distraction and stress for the pilot group politics in the election and now covid and now covid restrictions and now vaccine mandates it, we're seeing that effect and we just need to remind ourselves as professional pilots to keep those distractions out of the cockpit and so that's number one um, so really avoid those conversations and focus on on the safety on the flight deck Second is it, vaccine mandates. It's a divisive issue. It's stress. It can provide a lot of stress on an individual, you know, making sure you're fit to fly. Okay. That's another responsibility we have uh, to the company, to our fellow pilots, to the public. So again, those programs, whether it be, you know, calling out sick or, or, or if you're fatigued, you know, utilize those programs if you're unfit to fly, because that's another important safety responsibility we all have. The integrity of our safety programs, you know, again, uh, I understand we want to highlight those distractions in our safety programs, but again, uh, we can't get the those divisive issues into our safety programs and, and, and harm the integrity of them. And lastly, I just want another highlight for our peer assistance uh, committees, you know, utilize SERP uh, if you have an, uh, an on-the-work issue, utilize professional standards, utilize the pilot assistance network. Uh, Air Medical Committee, these are all great resources, especially in this time of, of stress and distraction to, to get the help you need. So just want to leave that with our pilot group. Thanks. And lastly, to our pilots, thank you so much for making time for us on Ride Report. We'll see you right back here in a future episode. Ride Report, a podcast from the Master Executive Council of JetBlue Alpa for the union pilots of JetBlue.